welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, we discuss the national debt, which now totals over $26 trillion. As Congress debates more COVID-19 funding packages, we'll consider the future of our country with an ever-growing debt and what it will take for Washington to control the spending and actually put themselves on a budget. But before we dive in, IWF does know that many Americans are facing unprecedented challenges due to COVID-19, and that it's more important than ever to show what America is made of. IWF is highlighting American ideals of ingenuity, generosity, and kindness. From everyday Americans donating blood to companies providing free food and housing, it's a beautiful reminder that we're in this together. So visit IWF.org or check us out on Facebook and Twitter and follow our campaign using the hashtag InThisTogether. That is hashtag in this together. And now to our guest today, Veronique DeRuji is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and she's a nationally syndicated columnist. Her primary research interests include the U.S. economy, the federal budget, homeland security, taxation, tax competition, and financial privacy. Her charts, articles, and commentary have been featured in a wide range of media outlets, including Bloomberg, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, and Fox News. In 2015, she was named in Politico's magazine's guide to the top 50 thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics. And it's an honor to have her on today. Veronique, thank you so much for joining us on She Thinks. Thank you for having me. So we are in the midst of a staggering debt. That number is now, as I mentioned up top, $26 trillion. This has increased dramatically in the past few months due to COVID-19 and spending. But I want to just start us off and get have you give us a framework of how we got to such a large debt. A lot of spending. That's how we got to that much debt. I think a number that is um, quite uh, um, telling, actually, I'd say it's a lot of spending, and it's particularly a lot of spending really quickly, I would say, in the last 20 years. Um, our, our debt to GDP ratio, right, in 2007 was 35% of our GDP, which seems already quite big. Um, and now, after the pandemic in 2020, it's going to be 101%. And it was 79% before the crisis. So we've, I mean, it gives you a scale of how much money we're spending and how fast. we're spending more money and we're spending it faster. And we're, send, we're spending it through borrowing. This is how you accumulate debt is you uh, spend more money than you raise in taxes. I mean, it's just as simple as that. You make big purchases. You don't have the money. You put it on the country's credit card and you don't uh, pay back. And this is something that I've wondered as we see the debt increase year after year after year is I feel that the numbers or even the word trillion loses its meaning when there hasn't been any clear ramifications to this point. I think people easily push it aside. And so do you think part of this is, is we haven't faced any repercussions for the numbers so far? So people just don't think it's that bad of a problem. 
So yeah, I think I think you have a point. So this this week is the anniversary of uh, Frédéric Bastia, um, the the French economist, and and one of the things that Bastia is known for is uh, for his essay, uh, uh, what is what is seen and what is unseen. And one of the points that Bastia makes in this essay is that they are always two side two policies. There is the, the side that you see, the scene, and then there's all the other side that you do not, uh, sides that you don't see. And, uh, and, and, and the good policy people, the good economists are those who actually see both. And unfortunately, the way a lot of policymaking is happening in this country is that we actually only highlight one side without seeing the, uh, without showing the other. And, and, and in, in this case, it's actually really quite hard sometimes to see because as you said there hasn't been um, a really visible connection between anything that has happened to us yet and uh, and and the size of our debt uh, however there's actually a ton of academic academic work that actually tells you that uh, we shouldn't it's not because you don't actually see it like with your eyes all the time that it's not happening. And one of the big effects, um, apart from the immorality of it all, that we are pushing all this debt onto our children and at some point, you know, uh, high deficits are going to be uh, met with demand for higher uh, spending, is also that actually higher debt means lower growth. And so I've wondered as, as people talk about doomsday scenarios and say our debt can't continue to grow at a certain point in time, there's going to be a catastrophe. What does that catastrophe look like? So if our yeah. debt is too high yeah. to be sustainable, what what are we expecting? No, unfortunately, I actually don't think, you know, debt crisis, um, like the, the type of people talk, the doomsday uh, type scenario, um, I mean, they only happen in the countries that are usually less stable, uh, with not with not as strong institutions as what we have. What we could be having, however, is is a system, is a scenario where we go from financial crisis to financial crisis, but not this kind of like just just you know like um, cliff where you know we fall and and it it just kind of it's just it's it, it unprecedented. Uh, I mean the each each financial crisis could be bigger than the next, but but it may not be like you know this kind of uh, what what Greece faced uh, a few years ago. Uh, what is more likely, unfortunately, and this is this is I mean you know the the, the tale about the frog you know that you put in like super hot water versus the frog that you put in in, in slow um, water that and you just increase the temperature. It's like we're more like that second frog. And, and what happens is, like, as the debt grows, we're becoming more and more like Japan. And this is, uh, this is an example that I only want to keep, uh, you know, pushed so far. But what happens is that you end up with countries with high level of debt, not too high interest rates, because we're still a country that is still attractive relatively to other countries, but with, uh, with really actually very low economic growth. And part of it is because government spending actually does shrink the size of the private sector. I mean, we have evidence of it, academic studies, but also, again, as I said, because the debt itself at some point weighs on our growth. And I would just, I just, 
Um, my colleague at Mercatus, um, Jack Damon, and I just actually published a study um, that actually shows that since the financial crisis and since the uh, the, the study by uh, Carmen Reinhardt, uh, uh, Carmen Reinhardt and uh, Rogoff, sorry, I forget his first name, um, um, back in 2010, that showed this connection between uh, death, debt, and, and, and lower growth, uh, which was controversial because they had some mistakes. There actually has been about 25 to 30 studies, and all of those studies, actually, they find, with the exception of two, they find that that same connection that uh, Reinhardt and Roboff found. Higher debt in and of itself, this is the important point, is like the debt itself becomes actually a burden on our growth. And you talked about the the burden that we're passing on to future generations. And I think one of the things I, I wanted to hear from you on is, so as we look at how much debt is on each individual or each household as the debt grows, what does this mean practically for families and for individuals? So as they see the debt continue to grow, how they, should they put that in real terms for what that's going to mean financially for them? So there are different effects, right? So um, like you, you move you move to a situation where, so with, with higher debt, would you end up having, usually it's because you have high deficits, right? Uh, people may be somewhat immune to the debt rising, uh, with the exception of a few people who pay attention or care about it. But people actually tend to pay attention to, uh, you know, kind of threshold, debt, uh, deficit threshold, like, you know, reaching a trillion dollar. And, and by the way, we 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 went from almost uh, crossing the trillion dollar uh, threshold for a deficit in time of peace and growing uh, and economic growth period to uh, to now we're at $3.7 trillion of deficit at the end of 2020 um, because of that, this, uh, this crisis. So people are actually really sensitive to this. The thing is what follows is Usually there are calls for lower spending, but there are also actually calls for higher taxes. And that is important because uh, there is there will come a moment where the debt is so high that all these people who've been calling for years and decades for higher taxes and especially for new form of taxes in the form of a value-added tax or a carbon tax or both, Actually, um, they will they will get their wish. So you have high taxes plus you add new taxes that leads to lower economic growth, and that's how really people feel it. Not because only because taxes are higher, but also because the impact of taxes uh, on on growth is is really um, you can feel it. You'll have and of course the burden of that growth fall heavier on lower-income people and also on young people who already, because of our mandatory programs, you know, we, we have a system where basically there's a massive uh, transfer of wealth from those lower, relatively lower income uh, and relatively young in our, in, our, um, in our society towards the relatively wealthy, relatively old uh, member of society. So, they're the one who are really going to uh, see the burden of it. And again, unfortunately, I mean, they may actually start react to higher taxes and be upset with this, but there's all these unseen effects. 
and the unseen effects are actually going to be significant. The, 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 the impact of low growth is, is actually no one can, I mean, you cannot overstate how important to um, people's um, welfare, uh, fast economic growth is. And so this leads me to my question on COVID-19 and the decisions that both Republicans and Democrats made to help individuals who were unemployed, helping businesses who were forced to stop working. What has been your perspective on the stimulus funding to this point? Some like to talk about this as being bailouts. Others are saying it's not a bailout because people were told they couldn't open up. This is a once in a lifetime um, catastrophe and crisis. What has been your take on how government has responded to this pandemic? Too fast, too big, not enough thoughts were put into it. There was definitely a need for doing something, but um, unfortunately, um, member of Congress were panicked. I understand we all were. And um, the problems like you would expect them to know a little bit more, uh, to actually basically act in a less panicky way than we do. Um, but um, the, by the way, they were actual bailout in, in the, in the CARE Act. Um, they were, they were $50 billion of bailout, of direct bailout to the airline industry. There's $17 billion that looks, it's not named as such, but it's, it's done in such a way that it's a, it's a bailout, uh, for Boeing. Uh, so they were actual bailout of corporations in there. Um, uh, the, the other problem is that basically, Congress treated this, as, as you mentioned it, as a stimulus, but there was no way to stimulate the economy. In fact, a lot of what um, Congress, is, Congress was doing and governors around the country was to actually make sure people weren't producing, people weren't consuming, people, this is exactly the opposite. So unfortunately, we did a lot of things that we called stimulus in a world where actually there was nothing to stimulate because the whole point of the lockdown was to actually kill economic growth. Um, so uh, if, then if you look at this plainly as a bill that was supposed to alleviate pain, the problem that I have with it, and again, I support, I support, I, I supported obviously doing something, but what, uh, what I have problems with is that they, um, there were a lot of pro programs. They were really big. They were uh, either you go the unemployment route or you go the individual checks route or you go uh, the paid leave route. Or, but unfortunately, they went every route, all of them at the same time. They also designed an unemployment benefit expansion that is so generous that in the end, 66%, uh, roughly two-thirds, basically, of the beneficiaries right now make more un uh, unemployed than they were making while they were employed. That's a real big problem. It's a big problem for the recovery. Uh, it's, a, it's a big problem, in my opinion, for the message that it sends to Americans. But it's also a big problem for another program that they put in place, the payroll uh, the, uh, the payroll protection uh, program. That program, which is a loan to small businesses, I mean, I'll pass my complaints about implementation and all of that stuff. Um, that program 
in order for you to get your loan forgiven, you have to keep a big, big chunk of your, of your employees. Unfortunately, that, when it interacts with the unemployment benefits, makes it very hard for businesses to actually keep their employees and to bring them back when the economy reopens. So it was just all over the place. It was all over the place. Yeah. And like you said, it led to some bad incentives. I think how much people were paid not to work as being a clear cut example of that. And there, when you're talking about such major decisions, there are these unintended consequences. And with unintended consequences and this being new, this pandemic and something we've not seen in our lifetimes, and as governors are trying to figure out the phases of openings and closing things back up, I know as a business owner myself, not having certainty is a really tough thing. There's, of course, understanding that we're in uncertain times. But what does it mean from an economic standpoint to not just shut down the economy, but to have starting up again, and then maybe some of that is tailored back, this back and forth that we may see throughout 2020 and maybe even 2021. What does that mean economically for the country? Well, so, I mean, well, you know better better than I, who've only, you know, worked as an employee of uh, nonprofits, really. Um, and just uncertainty in the business world means uh, paralysis. When you are uncertain about the future, you're not going to be investing in your business. You're not going to be hiring new people. You're not going to be expanding your business. You're not going to be taking uh, risks. And unfortunately, uh, the, the level of uncertainty, the level of, um, of uh, com- conflict and the messages that are um, that are you know given to people, the change in direction uh, all the time is 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 a is a big problem, and I I think that this is going to be the biggest impediment, uh, the biggest impediment to um, to to the recovery. And let's talk about solutions. So we've talked about all the problems. We still need to see what the outcome will be of COVID nineteen and how long that's going to be impacting the economy. But when we look at it. As a whole, the debt that we have, it seems that both parties struggle to keep keep themselves to a budget. They ask us to personally, but they struggle as, as the brand, the legislative branch of government to do so. What are some steps that you think we can take and need to be taken in order to try to get our debt under control? Well, so one of the things that seemed particularly important to me is going to be to make sure that uh, the unemployment benefit expansion is not renewed, at least not in the current state. So that means basically the um, the $600 bonus uh, that everyone gets uh, should not uh, should be should be removed. Um, you can do a minor expansion of the benefits on top of state benefits, but but it needs to be minor. Um, the um, uh, so that's that's really one thing because unemployment benefits, even when they're not uh, incredibly generous, they create um, they create disincentive to work. That's the first thing, and this is like that the way this was designed, and it's not by the way just the six hundred dollars, but it's also it expanded eligibility to a lot of people uh, for. Basically, any reason they any reason they wanted, they could just drop out of of the labor force 
stop their job, whether they were working full-time or part-time, and get that $600. So it was just like, it, we created so many disincentives to work. So you, you, you need to put that under control. Um, and uh, I think that the, the problem, here is the big problem that we have in getting our debt under control. The, you, talking about the debt is effectively talking about what we call mandatory spending. Mandatory spending is what others call entitlement spending, and they're not entitlement spending because even, even for Social Security, the, court, the Supreme Court has ruled that actually you're not entitled to that spending. If Congress changes the law, it doesn't matter how long you've contributed with your taxes, um, your benefits uh, could be cut. Um, but this is really the problem. Entitlement spending, so that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, that's these are, I mean, they consume the bigger chunk of our budget, and they are the drivers of our future debt. If you want to control the debt, if you want to control deficits uh, going forward, you need to reform those programs. Uh, I think that the way to do it is to move to a needs-based um, system as opposed to an age-based system like we have with Medicare and Social Security, and that is because while in the past, lower-income um, seniors were overrepresented once they stopped working in the uh, lower-income um, um, bracket, and now they're overrepresented in the top-income quintile. And, and so a lot of seniors, and it makes sense, right, thanks to markets and accumulation of capital and all this, and then seniors, uh, a majority of seniors actually do really well. But so if you have a system that is needs-based as opposed to age-based, then you actually restore some sanity where we don't have this system that is designed to send a ton of money to people who actually have the most. So that's the issue. The other issue is going to be to actually roll back in a significant fashion all of the programs that have been put during this crisis um, uh, that have been allowed and implemented on a temporary basis and to not make them permanent. That means federal, um, federal paid leave program, that should absolutely um, be a goner because that too has really a lot of unseen effects. Um, there's, there's, and, and, and there's so many others that I, that I could name, but that is going to be the battle in the short term. And then there's a long term and long term is all mandatory spending. And it seems that the entitlement spending, which has been talked about for years, seems to be a hard thing for politicians to be able to move forward on. They're always afraid of losing votes um, in their districts if they do so. Well, yeah. But like you're saying, seniors, it, it's seniors, something that has to be done. Vote. Seniors vote, and, and there is actually really strong support among the population. But this is why we actually need to uh, to change the, 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 the debate. Um, there was a really good poll a few years ago done by, um, I guess, it was uh, Reason at the time. It was Emily Akins. She's at Cato now. And then actually looked at um, young people's support for reform of entitlement. When uh, they support entitlement spending, but what they actually really support is a safety net. And there is this misconception, again, that programs like Social Security, Medicare, they actually support lower-income people, and it's actually not the case in, 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 in most cases. Yes, there are seniors, absolutely there are seniors 
who are low income. But if you actually redesign the system to make it based on needs, right, those seniors will be covered. Um, and, and then they're actually, all these programs, they actually create big disincentive to save. Um, and, and, and so it's it just kind of, we must reform them. And, and there's a lot of support for all of these programs. My colleagues actually at Mercatus, Matt Mitchell, Adam Thier, and Patrick uh, McLaughlin have just put out a paper about how we should create a BRAC-like commission uh, to address healthcare spending. And so basically it would be a commission, an independent commission that actually looks at, if you remember the, uh, the BRAC was like base realignment um, um, act committee or something like this. And basically what they did at the time, that was in the nineties, they needed to uh, cut, close a bunch of bases, but they had the same problem where um, Congress people didn't want to actually support closing the base in their district. So they had this commission that actually presented a package for an up and or down vote. And that's the way they close a lot of bases. Well, we should do that for um, healthcare. And they've just put out a paper about this. And I think we can do this for a lot of the spending that we have. And I think these are, these are a good idea. And that leads me to my final question. I'm glad you brought up health care. We heard a lot during the Democratic primary debate about Medicare for all and how much that would cost should that be implemented. And the refrain that we heard from Bernie Sanders over and over again was that it would actually save money. When you hear Bernie Sanders talking about his plan, which is trillions of dollars, tens of trillions of dollars, saying it will save money, what is the economist in you think when you hear that? Well, I mean, when you put a place a, in place a system that pays a lot of things for a lot of people, you know that it actually is not saving money, uh, uh, especially, um, I mean, it is, I mean, it's not saving a lot of money, but you also know that there's a lot of rationing that comes with that system, by the way. Uh, now, there's a lot of rationing that goes on in a system of private insurance, but I, I mean, the, the question is, who would, you, would you, who would you prefer does the rationing? The thing that's interesting, by the way, about the debate over Medicare for all and the Bernie plan in particular, uh, saving money, is my colleague, uh, Chuck Blahouse, actually wrote a really, really fair paper um, about uh, the Bernie plans where he actually took very, very seriously every single one of his assumptions and did not push against them, including the most outrageous. Uh, um, and, and he found that still under the scenario, sure, there'd be, there'd be a significant decrease in, 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 um, in administrative costs, but uh, in some costs, but overall, it was, a, it was a huge amount of money. So Bernie Sanders was like, was like see, even the Mercatus Center says. But the thing that Chuck was pointing out is that this is only you only get these type of cost reduction in some areas if you actually take seriously implement and actually assume that doctors are okay um, for getting a 25% cut to their, to, their, to their fees, to their reimbursement fees, which of course we know, right? When, if you're going to be cutting doctors' reimbursement fees, by 25%, what's going to happen is you're going to have a reduction of the supply of healthcare, right? And so you're right. going to get, you may get lower costs in some, in some ways, in some ways, uh, but you're going to get 
very little health care, or much significantly less health care. So it's it kind of an interesting. People have to be careful when uh, when they when they listen to what Bernie Sanders is, is, is saying about his own plan. Well, often politicians like to skew their numbers in their favor. We're, we're not surprised by that. And I think it comes back to what we do know is foundational, which is free is never free. Costs do have to be paid for somehow. And we so appreciate you coming on to talk about the budget and not just where we are, but where we need to go and how do we correct it. So, Veronique, I so appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for joining. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so you can let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.